Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined as always by Steve Hayes, Jonah Goldberg, and David French. This podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and podcasts, and make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Today, we're going to talk about the president's speech in the Rose Garden and his walk through Lafayette Park, why his approval numbers haven't moved even while a majority of Americans disapprove of his handling of recent events. Republican Congressman Steve King's primary loss last night, and what it says about the future of the Republican Party, and how social distancing measures appear to be taking a back seat to protests. Plus, the guys and I get into it a little bit on a question of journalism ethics, and some surprising answers when I asked them what dish they would pick if they could only eat one thing for dinner for the next six weeks. And earlier this week, the president gave an address in the Rose Garden, uh, fully dedicated for the first time to speaking about the death of George Floyd and the protests that have sprung up around the country. In the background, you could hear protesters being cleared from just north of Lafayette Park. Uh, and the president from there and a group of cabinet members and his senior advisors walked through Lafayette Park to visit uh, a church that had been damaged the night before. This has sparked numerous conversations around the country, around kitchen tables. Jonah, starting with you, I know you love it when I do that. (laughs) Um, Is this the iconic moment of the Trump presidency so far? Um. For now, yeah, I think it probably is. Um, it just, you know, you, you, it can always get worse. There can always be another iconic moment. Um, I still, in some ways, because I, I'm a big fan of sort of magical realism, think the orb touching was the iconic <laughs> moment of the uh, Trump presidency. Um, but it, I think it does sort of crystallize a whole bunch of aspects of Trump's presidency. And I think, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is, is that the way you uh, beat a challenger is do what Obama did. Um, you do what, what Clinton did in 96, is that you define your opponent really, really early and um, go after him negatively in May and June before they have a chance to really get their campaign up to speed. And I think that in a twist, Donald Trump has done that with himself. Um, He has defined himself negatively in a way that um, uh, I think could have lasting ramifications. I I, I, I just hedge on this because I think, you know, the quote unquote enemy, and I don't like calling them the enemy, but for the sake of the phrase, gets a vote here. And the, the rioters and the Democrats could mishandle this so badly that Trump's shtick, you know, his sort of strongman shtick could actually end up retrospectively playing well. Um, it's just right now, it's, it's very hard for me to imagine how much worse society has to get for that to happen. And I really would not like that to happen. But, you know, people, lots of people say, why can't Trump be more presidential? Why can't Trump do this? Why can't Trump show compassion? 
in a lot of ways, it's sort of like people asking me, you know, why can't you win um, international ballroom dancing competitions? It's because I can't. You get that a lot? I get it a lot. <laughs> I did, and the thing is, I just, I don't have any of the skill sets or capabilities to do such a thing. Trump is like a basketball player with one move, and it's to do this strongman strutting stuff. His conception of the office, his conception of how media works is to convey these very simple, um, you know, strongman images, even if he doesn't actually want the responsibilities that come with actually being a strongman. He's a strongman light. He's strongman-ish. And um, I think at the end of the day, it's going to end up, I, I, I hate being so inarticulate. I was just so disgusted by the entire spectacle of it. And I'm so disgusted by how America is behaving during all of this. That's very hard for me to sort of just say this is all about Trump and it's not all about Trump, but he is living down to all of my expectations here. David, there's been a lot of comparisons to 1968 in the last week. Uh, And that, at least historically, in a very simplified version, is to some extent credited, uh, Nixon's win is credited for what was going on in 1968 in the country. That law and order really was, um, restoring law and order was a very important thing for a lot of Americans. Do you see differences today? (laughs) I see big differences in the, at least in the sense that who the law and order candidate is and how this would play out. I mean, In 1968, uh, the law and order was breaking down under a Democratic president, Lyndon Johnson. Um, Nixon was challenging Johnson as the law and order candidate, as the person who could bring order and could and and could, you know, activate that silent majority. Although was he using silent majority in 68 or 72? That's 72, I'm pretty sure. 72. Okay, scratch the silent majority comment, but uh, who was running as the as the. as the guy who could bring order out of chaos. And, you know, I think this is not, you know, we, we're learning, here's the standard uh, caveat regarding political prognostication these days. Uh, who knows what will happen? But if I had to give my best guess, I don't think that the law and order argument is going to work for the person for whom law and order broke down during his presidency. I mean, this is a person who was calling what was going on in 2016 American carnage. And what that was even at the height of riots in Ferguson or Charlotte um, or some of the Antifa violence in Portland was nothing like what we've been seeing over the last four to five days. Nothing like it. I mean, this is where the 1968 comparison for the first time in my life has become at least somewhat in the ballpark. I mean, 68 was still worse. 67 was worse. But, you know, this is this is uh, far worse than the carnage that Trump decried. And, and I think even worse for him, I think an awful lot of people look at his leadership as things are breaking down and saying, wait, that's the opposite of a steady hand. That is the opposite of calm under pressure. Uh, And, you know, to go back to the photo op, I think the photo op moment reinforces a lot of that. Here was a extremely reactive decision in response by many accounts to the stories that had put him in the bunker uh, the day or two before underneath the White House 
where he wants to show some strength. The whole thing is botched. Uh, and all of his all his defenders are left with is an argument over whether or not pepper balls are tear gas and and whether or not it's the fake news media is exaggerating what he did because pepper balls were used to help clear uh, help clear the path rather than tear gas bombs or tear gas canisters. And that's what we're left with now. And and so I think that, you know, in it's still a long time before the election. But it's tough to run as the law and order candidate when law and order broke down under your watch. And it's easier to run, even if you're a Democrat who's traditionally not going to be arguing for this sort of overwhelming force to say, if I wasn't this guy, uh, I'm not this guy. And if this guy wasn't here, tension would not be so high in the United States. So I, I just don't think it works in his favor. Steve, broad question to you on the reaction from inside to this event. Uh, Bill Barr, uh, through a department official, does not appear to be a leak, uh, has said that he was the one who ordered the clearing of Lafayette Park uh, when he saw that it had not been cleared in time. Uh, Defense Secretary Esper initially said he did not know where he was going and uh, just now has had a press conference where he has sort of backtracked off that and said he did know that they were going to the church. He just didn't know what they were going to be doing there. Uh, you have Republican senators pretty split. You have some defending and some saying that it was inappropriate. Ben Sass comes to mind as uh, one of the ones who put out an inappropriate statement. Tim Scott did as well, though, which was meaningful uh, to me, at least. Does this... <laughs> Are we seeing a divide in how Republicans are going to be reacting to the president moving forward, or will this coalesce in the next 24 hours? And my question is silly. No, it's a good question. Um, and, I, and I think actually jo Jonah made a very good point early on. In partial Rare though it happens. Partial responses. <laughs> I know I, I hate to acknowledge that. Look, there was a, a note in political playbook this morning Um about Steve Scalise and Tom Emmer, the head of the National Republican Congressional Committee, talking about what a great moment it, it was for Trump. I can say, having spoken to several people uh, on Capitol Hill, that's not the consensus view of Republicans on Capitol Hill, including office holders. People are worried about it. They think it didn't play well. They're, they're worried that it was, I mean, it was so bizarre. If you, if you actually took the time to watch it, I've been covering politics for more than two decades and I've seen a lot of weird things in that time. I've never seen a photo op that was as bizarre as this one. Nobody knew what was happening. The president takes this Bible and kind of thrusts it in the air and everybody's looking around at each other. Nobody knows who's standing up with the president or if they should just leave him up there alone. And then he kind of beckons others to come over, including cabinet secretaries and Kaylee McEnany. And I mean, it was the whole thing was, incredibly bizarre. And I think for people who, who watched it, it suggested a White House that wants to project strength, certainly wanted to try to touch base with the, the evangelicals that are the part of the, the president's base, but ultimately looked like they didn't have any idea what they were doing. I mean, I, I think what they were trying to do, if I'm understanding correctly, is try to frame the coming days with a, a promise, a strong promise, a strong sounding promise to restore order. And I think in that sense, you know, Trump is defining this on his own terms. And 
if he's able to, if we see some semblance of order, if it looks, you know, last night was a, a better night overall than the night before, even though there was still uh, looting and, and rioting. If, if things gradually calm down, I think the president will be able to look back and say, see, I said I was going to restore order. I, or, I ordered this, this, this military presence. I uh, suggested I might uh, invoke the Insurrection Act, and here we are, and it's all worked. And I think he'd, you know, he'd be in a position to, to make a pretty good case on his behalf. The, the flip side of that, though, is if he's wrong and if the violence continues— or, you know, worsens even, he's going to be under intense pressure because he went out and made this declaration that it was going to end, to really end it. And I think that's when things could potentially get really ugly. So I think it was a gamble. It was a calculated one. It's, there's, I think, skepticism among elected Republicans generally. Um, but it's something that you could see in in a matter of days or a matter of weeks, the president being able to say, I took this bold action and, and you know, his voters certainly believing that he was right to do it. Uh, can I just a couple quick things on this? Um, on the 1968 thing, I agree with everything that David said. Uh, the, the reason why law and order worked for Nixon in part was because it was an indictment of the incumbent. And so I think David's right about that. But there's so many other things that, I mean, this is the, one of the problems with these these analogies. And I think it's particularly a problem for Trump because he has surrounded himself for a very long time in politics with basically Nixon retreads, starting, you know, Roger Stone, Roger Ailes, a lot of these people who um, cut their teeth in 68 and 72 with Nixon. And they've got this nostalgic... BSE understanding of how all of that worked. People forget 68 was a three-way race. And George Wallace was the, the racist guy in the race. Um, and Nixon's law and order appeal did not really have a overt racial overtone to it. Lots of left-wing historians like to retroactively, you know, uh, impose that on it. And I'm sure there was examples of subtext because Nixon played these kinds of games. But Nixon was the safe choice if you wanted someone who was for law and order and restoring um, stability um, because he wasn't trying to appeal to racists. He was trying to let Wallace have those guys. Nixon was still the he was the they brought him basically back from the wilderness to get over the Goldwater Yahoo stuff and have someone who actually had a history of the old Republican Party, which had been in favor of civil rights. The equation these days or right now is that this is a very much a racially loaded thing. It's not the campus long hairs and hippies that Nixon was going after. It's about race. Trump doesn't have remotely the ability to talk about race that Nixon did, which is not exactly, um, you know, <laughs> uh, extremely high bar. And, his idea of law and order, it's like he is tweeting out promos for the reruns of Law and Order on TNT. All he does is say law and order, and he thinks that's like an argument. And I just I, I honestly don't think it works. I don't think the comparisons to 68 make a lot of sense um, on a whole bunch of sort of granular demographic ways. I mean, the country is a lot less white than it was back then. 
Um, and the 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 issues at play are much different. We've now lost more people to COVID than we did we had by to Vietnam to the Vietnam War in its entirety. Never mind up until 1968. But also in 1968, America was a lot more violent than what we've seen so far. We saw major assassinations in '68. You know, uh, MLK, Bobby Kennedy. We saw you know uh, you know lots of 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 much worse urban rioting than what we have seen during all of this. And I don't think Trump has any sense, and the people around him have any sense of the the granular nature of what's actually happening and how to like pitch this appeal, which has to be done very carefully in a way that is actually going to bring over independence and and moderates. I just don't see it working. David is our suburban dad. Uh, <laughs> I want to go over some polling with you. Uh, and listeners, as you'll know from my rants and TMD or my own pieces, never trust one poll. So I'm, I've got a couple here that I'm going to smash together. Lekwa um, Hunsa was pretty trustworthy. <laughs> Sorry. Jeez. <laughs> I'm just a dad all, joke. Dad uh, joke yeah. interlude. I've been oh, stuck man. with my Guys, daughter for weeks on end. I'm a dad joke guy. So. He's been telling dad jokes all morning. I asked for a lighter topic and he texted me back the word helium. That's that's how my morning started. <laughs> You've been punishing me ever since. <laughs> I like it. Um, so, David, uh, no question that more Americans in multiple polls, CBS, Reuters, Morning Consult, uh, disapprove of Trump's handling of the events, protests versus approve. Roughly speaking, uh, on the Reuters poll, 55% disapprove. CBS, 49% disapprove. Uh, 40%, by the way, strongly disapprove. And it's in the mid to low 30s on the approval number. Um, also, right track, wrong track. 31% of voters say the country is headed in the right direction. The lowest... Uh, since morning consults started in Trump's presidency, 69% say wrong track. Um, now, that being said, here's, here's the issue when you dive in. <laughs> uh, of Republicans, 65% say the country is in the right track. So almost the exact reverse. Mm-hmm. And when you actually look at the president's approval rating, it is largely unchanged, statistically at least unchanged. Uh, Despite COVID, despite urban unrest, a lot of pundits are saying, you know, this is all going to come down to the suburbs and the suburbs are deeply unhappy with um, the president. Biden's lead over the president nationally has not particularly changed either. It's maybe ticked up a little. Uh, Some of that might be noise right now. Um, You're in the suburbs. Yeah. (laughs) What are what do you see and how uh, does this sort of unhappiness with the specific but no change in the general sit with you? Yeah. What are people saying at your Pilates class? <laughs> <laughs> now, this is this is a heart of red America suburb. I mean, there are Pilates classes. People just aren't proud of it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's that's a really good question. I, you know, there has been. And and I'll say this about the approval rating real fast before I move on to sort of this taking the the micro temperature of the suburbs. Uh, one is, as I've been saying, I'm just going to be a, a a broken record on this. He has a high floor, much a high much higher floor than other presidents in similar circumstances. He has 
a super loyal base. But if that's all he has, he's losing and he's losing pretty decisively. He's got to have more than that 43 percent. Um, you know, I f- have found it really interesting. Uh, and and to be clear, my little subculture of suburban America is evangelical suburban America. And the anguish over the George Floyd, the killing of George Floyd has been palpable. Uh, I was on a text thread with several conservative uh, conservative Christian friends last night from my church. And one of them was at a the, uh, the local rally last night in Franklin, Tennessee, and a multi-faith rally uh, in our in our little suburb. And there has been real palpable anguish. Now, of course, there's also anguish at property uh, at the looting, at violence, at you know the distru- physical destruction of people's businesses. There's real concern over that as well. But the the level of of I what I seems to me like genuine revulsion at what happened to George Floyd is has surprised me. Uh, it's it really has surprised me. And combine that with this real background degree of embarrassment um, that you have over the president's actions. There's sort of this almost, certainly there are the, the MAGA types out there, no, no question about that. But this sort of view that we are doing this again, we're going into election where I don't feel comfortable with either candidate, this sort of sense of real uh, resignation and embarrassment is is also there as well. And uh, I have moved from a rural part of Tennessee into this suburban part. And that sense of anguish and embarrassment is much less pronounced in rural Tennessee, much less pronounced. And so, uh, you know, I, you've heard me, Sarah, describe the suburbs as sort of the Justice Roberts of this election. Um, <laughs> it's it's the, you know, they're, they're the swing voter institutionalists. You moved from a Justice Thomas district into a Chief Justice Roberts district. Exactly. I ex- That's a great way of putting it. I, I went from Thomas to Roberts in districts. And, you know, to to a great degree, suburban voters strike me as sort of like they're institutionalists, whether they might be conservative institutionalists or more progressive institutionalists, depending on your region. They want things to be calm and OK. They want things to be normal. And they're not revolutionary. They want things to be, they might want to push in the ship of state in one direction or push the ship of state in another direction, but they want it to be done in an orderly fashion. And what's happening right now is is completely contrary to that culture, to that ethos. And, and I don't think that helps the president. I just don't think it helps, especially when he's not seen as a calming force. There was nothing about that photo op on Monday that was calming. It was deliberately provocative by clearing the protesters 30, 40 minutes before it occurred. It was a deliberate act of state intervention against uh, in using pepper balls and smoke grenades against peaceful protesters to clear a path for a photo op where he waves a Bible in a purely demagogic fashion. That is not something that says, oh, you know, he's got this. It does not does not say that at all. Uh, Steve, we haven't talked much about Joe Biden yet in our, you know, 20 minutes in here. Uh, Interesting number to me was that Joe Biden on uh, how effective he has responded to what's been going on has the exact same approval number, statistically speaking. 33% approve of Joe Biden's, quote, you know, handling 
statements on uh, the what's going on. But here's the number that really stood out. Nearly half said they just haven't heard enough. Uh, you know, politically speaking, when you look at everything that's been going on for the last month, and I, for one, feel like aliens must be invading next month because this keeps escalating into crisis after crisis. Uh, is Joe Biden fine with half the country not really hearing from him still? Sure. Yeah, I think that's I think that's completely fine. Look, he hasn't done much, right? I mean, he, he visited a church. Um, un, I don't know whether that came before or after. I think it probably came after that poll was was completed. So he, he hasn't done much. Um, he's he's given a statement. Uh, he put out a statement late uh, Saturday night. Um, but he, he hasn't been involved. He hasn't been looking for the cameras. And I think that's probably the right move for him here, unless he thinks that he could say something that would change the situation on the ground and actually, uh, help bring people together. I think he's right to want to stay out of this as, as a political matter. I think that, that he's also said, he's also said though, that he probably will not pick a VP candidate until August. Do you think he holds to that? Or is this going to force his hand on picking a VP. I don't think there's any reason for him to rush that pick. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how this changes the the calculus around that pick um, and, you know, puts additional, particularly in the context of the Democratic Party, puts additional pressure on him potentially to choose a black running mate, a black female running mate. Um, so the you've rise heard a of lot, Val Demings. Yeah, you've heard a lot more about, about Val Demings. You've heard a lot more about Kamala Harris in the last few days. Um, you know, I think the talk about Val Demings, having had some conversations with people in the last couple of days about this, um, it is, I think, initially, I don't think you were in this group, Sarah. You, you have been talking to her sort of from the outset. But I think a lot of people thought, oh, that would really be kind of a reach. You know, she's just a member of the House. Um, this isn't somebody who's probably in that top tier of potential running mates. And I, and I think there's a growing sense that she really could be, um, given her background and what she's done. And she has respect from Republican colleagues in the House. She she tweeted, she sent a tweet over the last couple of days was pretty aggressive, calling for people to to resist. Um, so really backing the the protesters in a way that some read as going too far. Um, but I think we'll hear we'll be hearing a lot more from her in the in the coming days, and I think we're likely to to see her star continue to rise. Jonah, is this the end of Club Mentum? I <laughs> kind of feel like it is. Um, Again, unless the aliens land next month and then we're on a whole different track. Yeah, no. I mean, again, it is it, you're making long-term predictions is really difficult, especially about the future. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I wrote this column. I stand by the reasoning. I wasn't planning on race riots and mass protests and urban unrest which does kind of change one's equation about things. And so I do think if if we were talking two weeks ago, it would have been a mistake to pick, you know, a Stacey Abrams or even a Val Demings or really an African-American woman as a running mate, uh, just given the, the range of options. I'm not against having an African-American woman as a running mate um, because it would have given Trump the ability to do a lot of demagogic, nasty stuff, play the reparations card and all that kind of stuff. But 
the equation just simply changed, and you can see the case for Val Demings much more strongly now. I think there's a much better case for her than, um, than say, Stacey Abrams, because what you want to do is you want to check some boxes about how it's an African-American. You want to, um, you know, it's got to be pleasing to the base, but you also want some reassurance to, you know, the, the, the Justice Roberts burbs um, and, uh, and having the former chief of police of Orlando is a good way to sort of have your cake and eat it too, you know, politically on that. It makes a lot of sense to me. All right, David, we have two members of Congress who are not, who are leaving as of January, 2021. And one is Steve King, <laughs> who lost his primary last night. And one is Will Hurd who retired. Right. Uh, two, <laughs> two sides of the same political party, if you will. Uh, Steve King's district, by the way, just for those who are waking up to the news that Steve King lost his primary, uh, it's a district that Donald Trump won by 27 points. So there's a good reason to believe that will stay in Republican hands, less so for Will Hurd's district, which is actually uh, one of the top tier districts in the country. Um, uh, I'm interested in how, but all three of you really think of Steve King's primary loss. And for that matter, and I mentioned Will Hurd, uh, not just because he happens to be retiring, but he also gave a very, um, I thought important message when he marched with protesters in San Antonio, uh, as one of the only black Republicans in Congress. Um, Steve King had been controversial really since he started in Congress, and yet he loses only in 2020 in this primary, uh, and probably because he was abandoned by the party more than any individual thing he said. He didn't have any money to run. He didn't really have much of a campaign to speak of. Uh, the comment that he made, by the way, that sparked all of this and lost him his committee assignment was, White nationalist, white supremacist, Western civilization, how did that language become offensive? <laughs> but even back in 2016, uh, he said the whole business, and he's speaking here of multiculturalism, the whole business does get a little tired. I would ask you to go back through history and figure out where are these contributions that have been made by these other categories of people you are talking about? Where did any other subgroup of people contribute more to civilization? And that's not even, I mean, this goes all the way back. So there's, there's sort of this, I think, line within the Republican Party this morning that like, see, that, you know, we've cleaned our own, we've cleaned our own house. He's out. This was a primary. Um, I'm not sure that I'm fully buying into that narrative of Steve King losing with Will Hurd also retiring. Well, I mean, look, we can unequivocally celebrate the demise of Steve King's politically political career. I mean, that is that is a classic example of addition by subtraction in the same in, in much the same way that the loss Roy Moore's loss in 2017 was addition by subtraction. Uh, this was. But, David, let me give you another example. Uh, Ron Desjardins won his primary in 2016, I believe it was. Uh, you anticipated my next sentence. <gasps> oh, David, you and I, we're doing too many podcasts together. We're Podcast in my Podcast partners. 
Yeah. Uh, there is need for more addition by subtraction, including Scott Desjardins. Um, Scott Desjardins, sorry. Who is in my neighboring congressional district. Um, he is, in, in fact, uh, I was at one point, I lived, I think, two miles from his congressional district. I, I wanted to vote him out of office so badly. Part of me wanted to just move two miles to vote him out of office. <laughs> Uh, but he's still in, and and this is a guy who, uh, his legacy of personal scandal is um, far, uh, he has a legacy of personal scandal that is one of the more, you know, grotesque records of any politician. I mean, as far as, uh, you know, the, the, the scandal of, of threats of violence, of plying patients with drugs, of being on tape, urging people to get abortions to, I, I could go into all of it, but it's extremely, extremely sordid. So yeah, there are still unsavory people on the GOP side. I think, however, the, the main problem with the GOP right now isn't so much that it's got these you know, it's got people like Steve King sort of seated in the uh, elected ranks. That's not the main problem of the GOP. The main problem of the GOP is it's orbiting Trump like Io orbits Jupiter. And that it the, the gravitational pull of Trump is having the same effect on the GOP that the gravitational tidal forces of Jupiter have on the, uh, that on Io, which is it's turning it into a volcanic mess. And that's the, the main issue right now, not, not this person or that person who's got this checkered past or these awful views that are scattered in the delegation. It's the, it's the incredible gravitational pull of Trump and Trumpism. That's the, the issue. I mean, look, if a Democratic politician, I mean, we could say this a thousand, thousand times, if a Democratic politician had done what Trump did on Monday, or if a Democratic politician had tweeted any number of things that Trump did, the GOP would be united. It would have voted unanimously to impeach a Democratic president who did exactly the same things that Trump did regarding the Ukraine. So that that is the that is the the real issue. It's you want to take the Desjardins out and the Steve Kings out and keep the Will Hurds in and and fend off the Roy Moores. You absolutely want to do that, but that's not the core of the GOP problem. Steve, why does Steve King lose his primary when Scott Desjardins doesn't, and the Republican Party loses through uh, uh, you know? not running again, someone like Will Hurd. Well, <clears throat> look, it, I Explain, think... Explain, draw a through line for me here of how yeah, this is consistent. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure there is a, a, a through line, and that's, that's part of the problem. I think I agree with, with David on that. I mean, if you, if you look at... Give credit where it's due. I mean, some Republicans finally sort of spoke out about Steve King increasingly um, over the, the past five years. I mean, some of the things that he said, you know, there was... Back uh, at the Weekly Standard, we reported on comments that he made comparing immigrants to dirt the day before the election. And um, those drew condemnation from his colleagues. Uh, people spoke out more forcefully about the kind of crazy things that Steve King was saying. Liz Cheney at one point called him racist. Well, you don't hear that very often. So I think in one sense, there's been progress that those denunciations were stronger and quicker. 
um, even if some of the leaders were, were late to coming to them. But then they also took the step of stripping him of his committee assignments. And if you look at how Randy Feenstra won, that's the candidate who defeated him in the primary, his focus was not so much on Steve King's incendiary language and the fact that he's an embarrassment to uh, humanity, but he ran against him as an ineffective congressman said, basically, this guy doesn't pass any bills. He's not on any committees. He can't actually do anything for Iowa's 4th District. Why would you want him in Congress? So it was a, it was a practical case. And I think probably this, the smart case to make uh, if, you're, if your goal is to win the primary, which his goal and the goal of his advisors no doubt was. You know, there, there is a bigger problem here, though. And, you know, my, my concern is, not only what happens with the kind of Steve Kings of the Republican Party, you know, is this the beginning of of a broader trend? And it's hard when you look around to believe that it that it really is, in part for the reasons that David spoke about. Um, and I think one of the concerns is as you as you see these primary Republican primaries take place around the country, you I worry. Um, that you have more and more candidates who are trying to sound like Donald Trump um, and, you know, in, in some ways sound like Donald Trump's bigotry. And that's a problem for the Republican Party. I mean, the, 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 the demographic projections don't make that a, a sustainable path uh, politically to say nothing of the moral problem that embracing bigotry has. Jonah, George Will took this on uh, earlier in the week before this primary. uh, And he basically says, throw all the bums out, including all the congressional bums. He says it with uh, lots of big words uh, and says that, uh, (laughs) that the Republican Party chose to stock Congress with invertebrates whose unswerving abjectness has enabled Trump's institutional vandalism, who have voiced no serious objections to his Niagara of lies and whom T.S. Eliot anticipated. We are the hollow men, our dried voices when we whisper together are quiet and meaningless as wind in dry glass or rat's feet over broken glass. Well, first of all, as someone who once worked for William F. Buckley, I cannot stand opposed to polysabalic sesquipedalianism. But... Um, <laughs> uh, uh, on a practical matter, I, I, I agree with Donald with, with George Will's indictment of Trump. I am not sure that I would go as so far as to say, let's vote out the Senate uh, Republicans. Um, if I were a, even if I were an anti-Trump, if, even if my anti-Trumpness and my voting were the most important things in my analysis, I am not sure that that's the best idea, um, but I certainly agree with the thrust of what he's saying, and I certainly agree that there's a terrible indictment of the, the, there is not there have not been a lot of profiles of courage among um, the Republican leadership over the last few years. I, I want to take a step back, though. You know, when you asked about the herd and the 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 King thing, you know, my initial response was going to be so one left the party in disgust and one was kicked out of the party because he was disgusting. And, <laughs> um, and there's some truth to that, but there's also part of the problem is, is that 
the GOP coalition was already changing dramatically, which is another reason why 68 doesn't work, because the coalitions are different than they were. Um, but, you know, the, the, the beating heart of the FDR coalition, the white working class, uh, non-college educated, um, you know, Joe Sixpack crowd had been moving Republican for a long time, and Nixon was part of that. The Republicans have struggled to hold on to the suburbs, um, particularly suburban college-educated women, for a while now. And um, going into 2016, Ted Cruz had this theory of the electorate, which is sort of like the white uh, uh, Republican conservative, the white, the white right-wing version of the Obama theory of expanding the base expanding the electorate. There were these 10 million hidden voters and all of the rest. The turned out that Trump took that theory and ran with it and brought out all of these new voters who aren't all bad people. They're not all deplorables and all of the rest, but they are more populist. They are more receptive to stuff that uh, the old Republican party of, of Reagan and Bush would just never tolerate. And the theory is, I think a lot of people have, is that, man, well, Trump is chasing away these suburban voters, particularly these suburban college-educated women anyway, and he managed to win by pulling in these new voters. This really is the new GOP now. I don't know how to talk to these people. Trump does. So I'm going to talk like Trump on the assumption hmm. that it works. And when you talk to a lot of Republican politicians who go to these rallies and they just see these new crowds of people that they've never seen before at Republican rallies, they... You know, the normal Republican crowd, they grow, they go to, you know, fish fries in Wisconsin or to, you know, to the Shriners and the Knights of Columbus meetings. They've known these people all of their lives and they know how to talk to them. And all of a sudden, a whole new crowd shows up that loves Trump, that doesn't care that he sounds racist, doesn't care that if, if he is racist. And they think, ah, so I got to talk to these are my new constituents now. And even if they don't believe it, they don't know how to talk to these people other than the language of Trump is awesome. And I think that's a huge part of the problem. I don't think the entire GOP leadership has gone populist, nativist, racist, or any of these kinds of things, but they're scared that their voters have, and they are slaves to their voters. And the last one I make is that Trump, in 2016, I have it on very good authority um, from people who talk to him about this stuff. It's not that Trump is, you know, he is not a Klansman, right? The he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he didn't spend his days cutting eye holes in the pillowcases of Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> um, he may be insensitive. He may be sort of a, you know, a, a bridge and tunnel, racially insensitive guy, the way he talks about the blacks and all that kind of stuff. But he wasn't a real Klansman. He thought a big chunk of the GOP was. And that's why he didn't want to disavow David Duke's endorsement. Because he thought it would cost him a huge number of votes. That's why my one of my favorite scenes of all of Trump anecdotes is at the 2016 convention where Trump passionately condemns the wanton slaughter of a bunch of people at a gay disco in Orlando and by a jihadi terrorist. And the audience applauds and cheers. And he's like, go watch the video. He's like noticeably <laughs> shocked. And he's like, I got it. And he leaves script and he says, I just got to say, I'm particularly proud of you for applauding that here today or some words to that effect. He was shocked that the GOP rank and file 
were actually opposed to jihadi terrorists murdering a bunch of gay dudes, gay Americans. And he thought he was taking this brave sort of woke position or something like that. He doesn't know, he didn't know his own coalition, but he's changing the coalition, he's making the coalition into his image. And the rest of the GOP is still grappling to figure out how to deal with it. Steve, I'm going to come to you because uh, I come to you on all things COVID, which we haven't talked about yet, which is incredible when you consider the last three months of our lives that, uh, you know, 40 minutes in, we haven't talked about coronavirus. And I guess the way I want to enter it is through the protests. Talk about lack of social distancing, as many people have noted. Uh, On the one hand, you have a group of infectious disease experts at the University of Washington who start circulating a letter. And remember, Washington, of course, is where, um, you know, the biggest first hotspot was. Um, uh, And their letter says that basically the risks of congregating during a global pandemic shouldn't keep people from protesting racism. Here's a couple quotes. Uh, White supremacy is a lethal public health issue that predates and contributes to COVID-19. Racism is a social determinant of health. It affects the physical and mental health of blacks in the U.S. I would weigh these crises separately. And to paraphrase, local governments should not break up crowded demonstrations under the guise of maintaining public health, they said in their letter. Um, On the other hand, I also want you to address what happens when there's not a real uptick in positive coronavirus cases two weeks from now, despite thousands and thousands of people across the country in every climate and every uh, part of states with open and unopened and different infection rates. What happens if we don't see an uptick? Yeah, either way, it's not good for our country's faith in experts. I mean, I think this is a, this is a, it was a pretty extraordinary letter and a pretty extraordinary thing to say after, after having told Americans for three months uh, that they couldn't have contact with anybody out of their bubble, that they couldn't even sit and hold the hand of a dying loved one, uh, that they couldn't keep their businesses open, you know, businesses that in some cases people had worked their entire lives to build. Uh, watch them go bankrupt in the interest of public health and in the interest of stopping the spread of this disease. And then suddenly, I mean, seemingly overnight, because it's a cause that they favor, they decide it's okay. I, I find this absolutely extraordinary and totally infuriating. And it's not just those experts from University of Washington. It's it's other people, including politicians. I mean, at, at one of his coronavirus briefings, Governor Cuomo said that he supported the protests. I mean, these are people who are doing precisely the opposite of what he had said for weeks could not be done. And he said he supported them. Uh, Governor Murphy in neighboring New Jersey said, actually said these words. It's one thing to protest what day nail salons are opening, and it's another to come out and peaceful protest about somebody who was murdered right before our eyes. Now, look, I'm incredibly sympathetic to the cause of the protesters. And and obviously, you look at what happened with, with George Floyd, and there is near universal horror 
I think it's good that we're having a bigger discussion about it, separating out the, the rioting and looting. I think the, the protesters here have a righteous cause. But you can't say what he just said. That's absolutely appalling. You know, for the people who own those day nail salons, that matters as much or, or more probably in many cases to them than an abstract protest about police violence. And I think you are going to see such a major backlash on this if you continue to have the very same people who said for months, I think with some justification, look, we got to do everything we can to stop the spread of this pandemic, suddenly say, yeah, you know, maybe it wasn't as bad as, as we thought. Things are, we're sort of ready to open up. And, and this is a, a cause that justifies people getting together and taking those risks. It, it's a bad, I think it's a, we're at a bad moment on this stuff. Uh, and, and it'll come back to, to bite these folks. David, I think this has some legal implications, too. On the one hand, yeah. you have public health experts saying that you can uh, get together to protest, and you have those same public health experts, let's use your pet cause here, saying you cannot congregate in a church. You're pre-channeling me again, Sarah. This is what I do now. I speak <laughs> David Frenchism. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one of the first things I would do if I'm if I was still in the daily practice of religious liberty law is I would be filing motions in in cases where Democratic governors, Republican governors, uh, Democratic mayors, I would say Republican mayors, but they don't exist um, that in cities of any size anyway, um, I would be saying, no, OK, all of your arguments about you're prohibiting mass gatherings on a neutral basis, on a neutral basis are now over. You're permitting mass gathering. The evidence right now on the record would be that you have a written policy that is uh, apparently viewpoint neutral, but you have an actual policy that is not. And the actual policy says, if you are protesting in a cause that I support, then you can gather. And you can gather in basically infinity numbers with zero social distancing. And that's your that's now your de facto policy. And I would like my chances, honestly, in court. I would like my chances. There are you can There's also a selective enforcement argument. Oh, it's uh, they're saying they have limited resources to arrest all the protesters. Fine. But then if you do take any adverse action against someone at a church, uh, selective enforcement is nearly impossible legally to ever win. This may be your chance. Right, exactly. And so, you know, especially if you're one of these churches who are seeking to open with social distancing, and I'm not even, you know, there's a, a class and category of churches on the fringe who are saying, we, we're going to open and we're not going to do so. We, we want to open without any social distancing, but the vast bulk who want to open want to do it with masks with, for example, my church is opening under our Tennessee guidelines, and we're going beyond that. And we have a reservation time for families so as to not overcrowd the church. We are being asked, though not required, asked to wear masks. We're going to maintain, we have one entrance, one exit. We have all of these measures to uh, protect the congregation. And I think it's all prudent and it's fantastic. But, you know, in other parts of the country, churches are going into federal court and asking to open on that very responsible basis. And as we just talked about in our 
uh, Monday advisory opinions, they're being denied. I mean, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court did that uh, on Friday. And so I do think that there is a civil liberties issue here. And then I also want to echo what Steve said about experts. Okay, so we have seen in the last three, four months a huge debate about scientific expertise and the role that scientific expertise should should inform public policy. And then we just had, as Steve references, these scientists using their science credentials to add additional heft to what was a blatantly political statement. And that, in many ways, sort of sums up a lot of the critiques we have of the expert class in this country, and that is they're using credentials that they have to imbue them with authority on matters outside their narrow set of expertise. Because I'm, I'm sorry to say that um, in the middle of a pandemic that you're going to risk per- perhaps many, many more deaths because white supremacy is more of a public health issue than a pandemic, that smacks of politics a lot more than sort of the precision of epidemiology. Well, so just one quick point on this. It's also, it, it, there is such a, it's not even apples and oranges. It's, it's, it's apples and pink flamingos. Because <laughs> the idea, like, I, I would actually give the these woke public health people writing this thing some benefit of the doubt if what they were suggesting was if you let these protests take their course, we will solve the problem of white supremacy and racism in this country, right? But it's not going to do that. So what they're basically just saying is you should allow performative stuff, even though it's not actually going to fix anything um, in the long term. And it's just that it's like, like with the pandemic thing, there's actually a measurable metric for what success looks like. Letting more people burn up Korean grocery stores for another week or clog streets in protests spreading the pandemic, there is no metric for how that reduces racism and police brutality in this country. All right, I want to do a quick journalism topic for each of you. A hot take, if you will. I'm actually very curious in what each of you will say. And then we'll do our lighter topic at the end. So here's the quick question. Uh, and Steve, I'm coming to you first. You, uh, you handle these issues for us at the dispatch. Initially, almost universally, reporters in the Lafayette Park uh, movement of protesters said that the park police used tear gas. I think now we all probably agree that the park police used smoke canisters and pepper balls. Uh, Pepper balls are an irritant uh, and smoke canisters are, you know, create smoke, but it is not tear gas per se. Tear gas is a different thing. Um, On the one hand, you have then reporters having to decide, editors, I guess, having to decide whether to issue corrections on that. On the other hand, you have some right-wing media saying, you know, look, fake news, they got this whole thing wrong. And then you have, I think, a lot of reporters on Twitter sort of mocking that it was incorrect and saying that, well, pepper balls plus smoke canisters equals tear gas in effect, uh, and therefore it's, um, you know, eye roll silliness to say that that 
uh, that there's any distinction. I'm curious, you've been in this business for a long time. How, do, where do you fall on that conversation? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't, I actually don't think this is that complicated. You should be as specific as you should, as, as you possibly can in describing what's being used and, uh, as accurate as you can, um, make it, make it as clear as you can to your readers who might not be, um, sophisticated on these various distinctions. And if you get it wrong, you should correct it. In this case, I mean, there's, there's an interesting, it is an interesting back and forth and it is sort of an interesting journalistic question. Um, people, reporters who were in Lafayette Park and surrounding areas, you know, felt the burning sensation that they had associated, particularly those who had been, you know, hit with tear gas in the past with tear gas. So they used tear gas as sort of a general term. Uh, there's an interesting Washington Post story out this morning about this, um, pushing back on the Trump campaign's uh, demands that journalists correct or retract their their claims that tear gas was used. And the Washington Post piece reports that the CDC uh, includes the pepper spray that was used in Lafayette Park as a form of tear gas. So tear gas is sort of the, the, the bigger picture. I wish I remembered my biology better and I could, I could do it that uh, way. But. Tear gas is the rectangle to pepper balls square? Sure. Yeah, that works. I mean, that's just so you just so I'm clear. That's not biology. I don't, I don't know where, it is not. where you went to school, um, but the uh, did they teach you that at Harvard? Um, the actually in the law school they probably did. Frankly, they were like biology. It's all the things. It's all about right angles. I was thinking. I was thinking of species, genus, things that I still get confused. Yeah, but okay. you know, tear gas is the sort of bigger category and then the more specific um, claim was this particular kind of, of pepper spray. So I don't think given what the CDC has said that you have media companies that would have to run corrections or retractions on it. If, if certainly if, if the CDC and others this has also been mentioned in medical journals, classify that this, this pepper spray as a kind of, tear gas, uh, I think, I think they're fine. And I think, look, I mean, I think just from a strategic point of view, I think what the Trump administration is doing is trying to discredit the media. They're trying to do this at every single step so that people don't believe the reporting that comes from the media. The media have, I think, in, in too many cases, many journalists have made the Trump campaign's job easier than they should have. Uh, I don't think this is one of those cases. David, Jonah, anyone disagree? Um, I, I have one gripe about it. Um, uh, I really don't. So part of my complaint with the people who are making this their hill to die on is much like the Trump campaign is they want to make it seem like the real controversy here is that the media described pepper spray and smoke canisters as tear gas when ha ha ha. We are so experts in in the means of aggressive crowd control, we know it wasn't tear gas. The thing is, just think for a moment if the all the initial reports got it right and said the president, in order to stage a photo op at a church, tried to dispel a crowd, dispel a peacefully protesting crowd with pepper spray and smoke canisters so he could hold up a Bible and a photo op. 
<laughs> That's the issue. That's the yeah. bad thing. And they would find something else. They, they didn't use smoke canister. They were smoke, you know, jars or whatever. Who gives a rat's ass? This is like uh, this is like rings in a freaking thousand-year-old tree. Every single time we have one of these things, the effort by certain people who don't want to actually defend what Trump is doing, but want to lend aid and comfort to his defenders. They do this anti-anti-Trump nonsense where they make it sound as if this choice in this election is between voting for President Donald J. Trump or President New York Times, as if they are actually running against each other. (laughs) And I'm with Steve entirely. If 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 you got some facts wrong, correct the record. It's not a big deal. But this the underlying issue of what the administration did, lying and misleading or 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 duping even member of its own administration to go on this walk so they could create some frickin' video at the Republican convention of Donald Trump's heroic victory in the Battle of Lafayette Square, um, and talking about battle space on the on the American homeland with you know, the, the Secretary of Defense and using pepper spray, but not not tear gas, because that would cross the line. That's the issue. And they want to make the one issue that they don't want to talk about is the actual issue. And that's why I find some of these debates so frustrating. Can I can I take your rant and raise a rant? Sure. <laughs> uh, this is the ultimate example of how on certain segments of right wing media, every story has to be a media story. Every story. Ultimately, ultimately, everything is going to be about what did the media get wrong? And this is taking it to the most absurd lengths, because to be very clear, what the media messed up is that by referring to tear gas, tear gas can only mean CS gas and it cannot mean CN gas, which the CDC disagrees with. I mean, that's how much we're we're um, picking this apart. And and what's remarkable about it is the idea that it would be unfair that it's somehow fake news for a person who is suffering the effects of the CN gas to then immediately go, you know what, I, I need to check and see if that was CN or CS as to what is making me cry and putting that burning feeling on my skin and making mucus come out of every orifice. Is that CN or CS? Because I don't want to be fake news. I mean, that's absurd. That's absurd. They were they were suffering from the effects of a riot control agent. A riot control agent is a for, is colloquially referred to as tear gas. There are forms of tear gas, CN, CS, others. Uh, it's entirely fair to describe that as tear gas. Now, where would where would it make a difference? Sometimes, if you have not ever been exposed to tear gas, I could see that with smoke rolling over you, and you've got some choking and burning sensations that you might mistakenly think of that as tear gas. But if you've ever been tear gassed, um, you will never ever mistake smoke with a riot control agent. You just will not, because it's a completely distinct thing. But there has to be a way to make a, uh, to transform a negative story about Trump into a negative story about the media. And this was the way, and it's an extreme extraordinarily absurd way to do it. And and one of the leading stories about it, what was fascinating to me is they did a, uh, the, the writer Molly Hemingway did a block quote of 
the explanation of what was used, bolded no tear gas canisters, canisters, but did not highlight pepper balls or explain what they were at all. And, and leaving the reader who knows nothing about riot control agents with the impression that the only meaningful riot control agent is tear gas, is CS, not this other kind of riot control agent that the CDC calls tear gas. So, I mean, it, it's you just, when you recognize the pattern, you can't unsee it anymore. Trump will do something that is any other president, these exact same people would be up in arms about. And then way to beat just wait a few hours, maybe wait 24 hours, and you'll figure out that somehow it's really a media story. And it happens time and time and time again. I agree on the media story aspect that you're raising. And I certainly agree that uh, overall, this does not, to Jonah's point, does not change what the story should be coming out of this week. However, uh, I think reporters should have been more careful. I think it's not that hard to say, uh, you know, as someone on the ground, uh, you know, the, you know, irritants were used or smoke billowed, like describe it. But if you, a reporter, are not an expert on various types of CS versus CN gas, then don't say that because I think it turned out, again, to your point that like, well, it's pretty close and all of that. Um, uh, You know, I think some of that is luck, frankly, David, that that ended up being the case. And I think it's not that hard to have some humility, which I don't see a lot of on Twitter from blue check marks right now, to say, uh, yeah, this is easy to correct. It doesn't change the overall point that, you know, the story made. We should have said pepper balls. We should have checked. We should have asked. There's not even necessarily, I I don't think, I think we're making a point here, but I think for a lot of the reporters, they weren't actually even making a point. They were just conveying information. Some of them in real time, right? They were there. They were hit with these riot agents. What the, what the CDC, what the CDC <laughs> c- considers tear gas, they described it as such in real time. I mean, I think it's, I, first of all, I don't think it's inaccurate. And secondly, I don't think you can ask reporters who are, you know, literally wiping away their, their, their eyes, this irritant from their eyes to pull out their iPhones on live television and say, all right, now let me get into the CS versus CN thing here. Yeah, just, but, uh, no, but they could have just way. described it. They could but have see, described my it as point pepper is spray. They could have said, yeah. I, I, I think they could have described there is an agent being used that is making my eyes burn and smoke. And a bunch of people would have said, that's tear gas, you dummy. But it's not up to the reporters to classify what it is. And I think, for instance, I was watching this live and uh, and I was very confused as a watcher Because if you've used tear gas, people walking through it, like the president and the cabinet members, should have also been affected, and they weren't coughing. And I was very confused why everyone on Twitter was agreeing it was tear gas. It turns out there was a really easy explanation to my question, but no reporters were asking that question. I think you make a good point. And I think it would have been better if they said they were using, you know, I didn't know what pepper balls were. I looked it up, and it turns out it's a way of using pepper spray. And I think... No one would be any less outraged if they had used, if, if they found out that the president cleared a, a field of peaceful protesters with pepper spray and smoke rather than what they think tear gas is. Um, but so, but to me, it's a little bit like, you know, writing about how they, you know, and this didn't happen, but just hypothetically, you know, the police released vicious German shepherds on peaceful protesters 
And it turns out that they were actually Belgian Malinois, um, which are also... I think that's actually a really close thing because actually, like, I have dealt with German Shepherds and Malinois and, like, the things of security detail that I've worked with. Um, And you know what a reporter should say in that case? Dogs. No, I agree. And I think for... (laughs) If you don't know what kind of dog it is... But to Steve's point, I think that a lot of people use tear gas colloquially, not technically. And I think that's where everything gets sort of hung up. You know, it's like the the I don't want to get into assault rifles, whether they're a thing or not. But a lot of reporters who don't know the technical jargon about guns sometimes mess up technical jargon about guns. It doesn't change the fact that a bunch of Michigan protesters brought guns to a protest, even if they got the descriptions of them wrong. Yeah, I mean, and when you don't get much more technical than the CDC, yeah. And but they didn't know that at the time, David, like I, I hear both you and Steve that like the the rectangle square point uh, genus phylum point. But uh, that that came out later, thankfully, for the reporters in question, they could have described what was going on. Right. I, you know, look, I mean, it, I think it would be similar, as Jonah was saying, to um, to a reporter saying, we're receiving AK-47 fire when it's really M4 fire, okay? Um, is, but they're all, they're all semi-automatic. They're semi-automatic rifles. Uh, and you, should you have said semi-automatic, semi-automatic rifles, but what is the umbrella term? I guess is the better umbrella term. We're receiving riot control agents. We're, we're, we're under the influence of riot control agents. I mean, uh <laughs> I don't know. I mean, this is splitting it pretty finely. I do think that, you know, in the, when you have the after action report, you know, these longer things other than the real time, that that real time in the moment, I'm being tear gassed right now. And then 24 hours later, you have the 6,000 word New York Times uh, explanation. Yeah. And to be clear, I'm not mad about tweets that said tear gas or anything like that. I'm mad. Mad is even the wrong word. I'm annoyed with today's uh, eye rolling that they even should have to think about changing the term from tear gas to what it was and how silly the whole conversation is when I don't think it's that silly to, now that you know, use the correct term. Yeah, but there's bad faith on the other side, again, because the whole reason why they're talking about it wasn't tear gas is to make it sound like, but for the accusation of tear gas, what Donald Trump did was absolutely fine. And what Donald Trump did was disgusting. Totally agree. And and can I I'll make let me make one quick point and then Sarah you have the last word. No, you get the last word. No, you do. What what they're doing is what you recommended that they do. You said, well, they should use dogs instead of German shepherds or whatever the other thing was that Jonah said. That's what they did. They used tear gas instead of the more specific term. So if you want them to use dogs, you know, in in the broader description, I think I think it's actually better if you don't know. You know, they probably didn't know exactly what what it was, but understood that it was some broad under some broad understanding. It was tear gas. So that's what they used. That's why I don't think you could say it's inaccurate, particularly with the, the CDC backing on it. Interesting, because I don't think they knew they were using the term dog. I think they thought they were using the term German shepherd. It may turn out that they were using the term dog, but that has been sort of a 24 hours later, we found the CDC page. No reporter at the time knew that the CDC classified them the same. And now I will ask you each, <laughs> we ran a little we ran a little long on that topic. Sorry, listeners, but I thought it was kind of uh, fun. I mean, it's, it's fun when we all yell at each other, right? Um, okay, ending question. 
I'm going to take a version of something Jonah asked here. We're still all stuck inside. We're still all at our uh, respective homes. If you could only eat one dish for the next six weeks, every night, same dish. You don't have to eat it for every meal, just dinner. <laughs> one dish. You don't, and, and this does not have to be you cooking it. I've, I'm giving you infinite dollars to purchase said dish and have it, you know, delivered uh, with social distancing to your door. What is that dish starting with you, David? Now, when we discussed this in the, in the green room, it was, <laughs> it was category of food. That's so, right. I changed it. Oh, yo, well, yeah. You know, it, I didn't like your answer on the tear gas. Yeah. Wow. When, well, you actually, when I made don't it, like your answers, I changed the question. You actually made it easier for me. Okay. All right. So in the South, we like our casseroles, right? And so there is a particular casserole dish that my mom made when I was growing up that my wife has refined and improved with the addition of a little bit more onion. And that is a casserole dish called chicken tetrazzini. And if you've never had it, it's life-changing. And it's, <laughs> it's, the, it's the best combination of uh, it will, it, it's Southern comfort casserole food at the apex of the genre. And, you know, it provides you with meat. It provides you with carbs. It's just fantastic. So and it yeah, definitely that's provides easy. you with calories. And in fact, I think of the eight or 10 weeks that we were under shelter in place, I may have had chicken tetrazzini, tetrazzini for a full one third of those meals. <laughs> so that's So this easy. is not a hypothetical for you. Okay, no. Steve. I mean, I'm tempted to just invite myself over to David's because that sounded good. <laughs> um, if we have to eat it for every meal for six weeks, it it does change. Just for the dinner, thinking. you said. Sarah, Sarah's yeah, just for, for dinner. But even for dinner, like if it's your dinner every night for six weeks, I mean, in a in a less specific question, I would probably choose some kind of steak. Um, probably don't want to have red meat every night for six weeks. Although I've had periods of my life where I was close. So I think I would, I think I would do, uh, tuna steaks. Um, you know, whoa, wow. Did not see that. Lightly, coming. Wow. Lightly <laughs> seared tuna steaks with, um, sriracha and, uh, maybe cut them up on, uh, put them on rice crackers and with some cream cheese. So do we do joke? we have we now settled once and for all who is the man of the people and who is uh, the elitist in this podcast? Wait, it got weirder when it went to crackers with cream Ye cheese. Yeah, I know. I'm just <laughs> I'm, I'm like you really guys have never had. I'll, I'll make them for you sometime, and and then you'll be begging me to come over and eat. I am rethinking honestly. my entire decision to join forces with Steve and start this thing. Um, <laughs> this is disturbing. I just I didn't see that coming at all. Yeah. Um, wow. It doesn't go with Spanish red wine very well, to be honest. True. No, I'd have to have some kind of Verdejo or something else. <laughs> oh, my gosh. One last question <laughs> on the, the parameters of this, Sarah. Um, yeah. Uh, we are, for the time being, throwing aside any concern about say, carbs or, you know, weight loss regimes or any of that kind of stuff. It's just you got to do this for six weeks. What what meal would you want to do? Right. That's how I intended it. Although Steve's, you know, non-red meat thing 
uh, he certainly seemed to have taken to account the possibility of a heart attack. No question. <laughs> yeah. So you have to factor it in, I think. Um, I uh, this is a tough one for me. I'm, I'm very tempted to say some version of uh, chicken, rice, and beans, because I think that is like with like just rice and beans alone, you get all of the sort of amino acids in the world you have. There's some umaminess to it that I just love. But I think beans for dinner for six nights is six weeks is probably not something that most marriage counselors would, would advise. Um, so um, I think I'm, I mean, it's, it's nice to say that you're going to have some restaurant deliver it and all that kind of stuff, but that just tempts you to get something really grandiose that you would get tired of pretty quickly. You know, um, you know, lobster thermidor on day five is like, <laughs> um, so I'm thinking, so I'm of the school that says that the chicken thigh is the best part of the chicken, maybe the most underrated cut of meat in America, other than hanger steak. Um, and we do a really good uh, arugula salad with um, different kinds of uh you know, different kind of proteins, but I would say with chicken thighs, maybe some various grains, some feta or queso fresco cheese in there. Um, this is the guy who just made fun of me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, agree, I, could, I, could, I could eat that. Well, it's, 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 it's different than asking I me. Mean, I had the cuisine question. This is a this is a difficult planning problem of like, what could you like maintain an appetite for for for? six weeks. And I think you need some variety in it so that you can like focus your brain on different parts of it. Um, so something, something like that, if not that, that wings, let's just do wings okay. and off salads for lunch. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, so I guess part of me asked that because for the last, my husband got a smoker, uh, about a month ago now. And so every Saturday he has smoked more meat than could feed like all of us for a long time. And so every night for dinner, basically for the last month, we have had smoked meat. Uh, and so I'm reflecting on what I wish we were having every night <laughs> for the last month. And the answer uh, is a resounding beef fajitas. Ooh, that's a good answer. I, I gotta say, that's a solid about. choice. And, yeah. Why do you call them and beef, beef instead of steak? Uh because actually correctly done, it's it's fajitas. They were invented by uh, Ninfa Lorenzo in Houston, uh, a family that I know pretty well, Steve, and the history of fajitas. So I'll call them whatever I damn well I know, but it's, it's, like, it's like dogs and German shepherds or two halves and CN. Beef no, instead no. of steak. I mean, it's fine. You call them what no. you want. I'm just, you seem to be preferring the general category now. <laughs> because there's... There's no such difference. All fajita, correctly described, is the specific type of meat used. So therefore, whether you describe it as meat or the specific steak, it's really just fajita. I mean, really, you should criticize me for putting anything before the word fajita. I just wanted to be clear that chicken fajita is not a thing. Mushroom fajita is not a thing. Uh, but Vodka I martini is not a thing, just... So it's on the same principle. Yeah. yeah, same principle. And to Jonah's point, I think that I've really won this because my fajitas involve all sorts of different 
pieces that you can, to Jonah's point, concentrate on. You've got your rice, your beans, your great tortillas, your meat, some queso or cheese, depending on what way you're going. Pico. I like a little pickle jalapeno with mine, some hot sauce. Are you a corn tortilla or a flour tortilla gal? Uh, Interesting question. So I make my own corn tortillas and they're delightful. Um, If I'm at the right place, which is Lupe Tortilla in uh, Texas or Ninfa's, uh, then I'll usually go flour because their flour tortillas are incredible. But correctly done, you go you go corn. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I, I'm just not. A, I, I, it's very rare. I have had a corn tortilla that hasn't detracted from the experience. I have to say, but maybe I'm just having the. You one. have to have them. Yeah, if you're having store bought corn tortillas, those aren't even. I don't know what they are. I don't know what they're doing to them. Like that's come over. You know, we'll social distance on the deck, and I'll make you some real corn tortillas. Uh, and by the way, due to the smoked meat situation, we've now renamed, um, this appendage that I have the little brisket. So the little brisket has nine (laughs) more days to cook, uh, cook little brisket, cook away. And thank you listeners for joining us on what, uh, we sort of, you know, we took some detours there towards the end. This has been a longer podcast. We thank you for, for making it this far and we will see you uh, next week. Or if you are a member of the Dispatch, we'll see you tomorrow night for Dispatch Live, where we do this with video and alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) What could go wrong? (laughs) Bye. Bye.